Thank you all for worshiping through singing. And now we're going to spend some time worshiping through the word together. Uh, my name is Justin Knowles again, the teaching pastor here. And uh, this morning we're going to look at some of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, so if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to 1 Corinthians 15 and grab a listening outline and a pen so you can write some things in along the way. And as you do that, let me say welcome to those of you in the contemporary service and those of you joining us online and on television. I'm really glad that you can be with us today as well. And it was uh, about 15 years ago that I went to London for the very first time. Uh, I was in school at Beeson Divinity School and we had a, this trip that was part class, part mission trip. And so while I was there, I got paired up with a missionary for a few days, and we did some different things. Uh, basically, his job as a missionary was to sort of go to different parts of London and just meet people and share the gospel. And he did that in several different ways. Some days, uh, he would just go door to door and meet people. And so we did that together one day. One day we went to sort of a retirement home and got to just sit and talk with the residents there and have some really good spiritual conversations with them. At one point while we were there, he and I were sitting at a table with an older gentleman, just the three of us sitting there and talking. Uh, getting to know him some and just having a normal conversation. And uh, finally, the missionary said to the gentleman, he asked him, he said, sir, what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? And the man said, well, they're going to bury me. That's what's going to happen. The missionary said, well, you think that's it? Like what? He said, no, that's it. When you die, they bury you. It's over. That's it. I was very eager to sort of see how the missionary would handle that. I guess I knew there were people in the world that believed that, but I'd never had a conversation with someone who just put it that directly. And uh, so as a seminary student, I was very eager to learn and to, to, you know, this missionary has these kind of conversations all the time. It's like what he does. And I thought, well, man, what a great chance to see how he handles this. Well, the way he handled it was by looking at me and saying, Justin, what do you think about that? So on the fly, I did the best I could. I said, well, actually, I believe that one day Jesus will come back and that when he does, those who have believed in him will actually be raised from the dead. And as those words were coming out of my mouth, I thought that's a really odd thing for somebody who doesn't have a biblical worldview to hear. Talk about dead people coming back to life. But before I even had a chance to explain it, the man just cut me off, he said, no. When you die, that's it, it's over. And that's pretty much where the conversation ended. And it was heartbreaking to hear someone say that. For one thing, he's just wrong, as we'll see in a minute in scripture. But also think about what that view would do to your view of life. If there is no eternity, there's nothing after we die, then nothing about this life really matters at all. Literally nothing has any lasting significance or meaning. And yet that's how this man was living his life and I'm convinced there are others that either have that same view or live like that's their view. Who live like there's not really an eternity and therefore really this life doesn't matter at all. 
Well, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that there is, in fact, an eternity. And because of that, our lives right now matter. They matter a lot. What we do with them counts. And in fact, the reality of eternity should impact how we live our lives in very significant ways. So here's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 15. Apparently there were some people that lived there in Corinth who believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They were on board with that. They affirmed that he had come back to life, but they didn't think anybody else would be raised from the dead. And so in their view then, this life here on earth, this 60, 70, 80 years, whatever you get in this life, that's it. Much like the man in London, that was sort of the view. So here's how Paul addresses that. Starting in verse 12, he says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, again, many of them actually believed that. He says, if that's true, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He says, we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise if it's true that the dead aren't raised. For if the dead aren't raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, well, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So would you write this in? He's telling us that if there is no resurrection, then following Jesus is pointless. He says to this group of people, look, if you're saying there is no future resurrection, dead people don't come back to life, he says, if that's true, then that means Christ hasn't been raised. If dead people don't come back to life, then Jesus didn't come back to life. It's sort of a package deal. If dead people can come back to life, Jesus has been raised. But if you're saying dead people don't come back to life, he hadn't been raised. And so that means he's still dead and that means you're not gonna be raised. And if that's true, we've got some serious problems. One thing he says, our preaching is in vain. Paul and others were literally giving their lives to proclaim Christ crucified and risen. If that wasn't true, then their preaching was in vain. It was pointless. It was a waste. But he also says to them, he says, your faith is in vain if this is true. Apparently, they had placed their faith in Jesus. They had trusted in Christ. But why? For what? If there is no resurrection, if there is no eternity. There's no resurrection. He's saying that means there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no judgment. Why trust Jesus? What are you trusting him for? And even if somehow you, you kind of concluded you needed a savior, well, why are you trusting Jesus? He's dead. He can't do anything for you. And so get where that view would leave us. It would leave us with people who literally exist only for 60, 70, 80 years. It's all there is to our existence. And we would spend that relatively brief amount of time following and serving and obeying and even worshiping a dead man. 
And in the end, none of it would matter. You can understand his conclusion then when he says, if that was true, that means then we've trusted in Christ for this life only. So if this is it, it's all about this life. He says, if that's true, he says to followers of Jesus, we should be pitied more than anybody else in the world. Why? Because we've based our entire lives on a lie. We've lived for more when there's nothing more to be had. We've set our minds on the things above when there is nothing above. We're storing up treasures in heaven when there is no heaven. He says, you should be pitied for the way you're living. My wife Cassie and I uh, recently celebrated our 16th wedding anniversary. Uh, Before we were married, we knew each other for right at a year. And then we dated for a year and then we were engaged for a year. And that year felt like forever. I mean, when you're engaged and you're in love and you're ready to be married and you got to wait a whole year, man, it seemed like forever. But it turns out we needed that year. Uh, One reason was we were waiting on her to finish school. We wanted her to graduate before we got married. And so it gave her time to finish her degree. But also apparently we needed that time to plan. Turns out there's a lot of planning involved if you want to have a wedding. And we started literally the night we got engaged. We went to dinner and started talking about things like what city do we want to get married in? And what church do we want the wedding to be at? And who's going to officiate the wedding? And who's going to be in the wedding? You got groomsmen and bridesmaids. How many do we want to have? And who are they going to be? And what are they going to wear? And do we want to have scripture read? If so, what passages? And who's going to read it? Do we want to have a song sung? If so, what song? And who's going to sing it? And there are all sorts of things. There are colors involved. There are flowers involved there's a program involved there's all sorts of things and that's just sort of the wedding itself we got a whole rehearsal and rehearsal dinner to plan where's that going to be and what's the menu going to be and what are you going to wear and who gets invited to that and then you got a reception a whole nother event to plan where's it going to be what's the menu going to be what's the first dance going to be like turns out pretty awkward Uh, in hindsight we should have spent our whole year planning that part of it I think a lot to plan. And that's just the, the wedding weekend. Of course, the most important part's the marriage itself. And we had to prepare to actually be a married couple and relate to each other in healthy ways and plan a budget and work on finances and where are we going to work and all these things involved a whole year of planning. What? Can you imagine if May 20th rolled around and I was standing up at the front of the church and looking at those big doors in the back and just waiting for that moment. And the doors finally opened, but there was no Cassie. She didn't show up to the wedding. I don't know, maybe she realized what the rest of us already knew, which was that she could do a little better. Maybe she figured that out somewhere along the way, but for whatever reason, she just didn't show up. What would that mean for that entire year of planning? It would suddenly mean that entire year was a waste, a waste of time, a waste of money, a waste of energy. So you're thinking, it's not like planning a wedding is just a really good, fun activity. And if the wedding doesn't work out, you go, oh, well, at least I got to plan the wedding. That is most definitely not how it works. 
If there was no payoff to all of that, then it was all pointless. It was a waste. If there is a payoff, then all that's filled with joy and meaning. But if there's no wedding, you look back and go, oh, that was a waste. I invested so much of my life in this and it turned out not to even happen. 1 Corinthians 15 says that's what it's like for followers of Jesus in light of eternity. We are living our lives, at least you should be living your life in such a way that if there was no eternity, your whole way of life would be pointless. But it would be a waste, it wouldn't make sense. Your life should be so oriented toward eternity that if you got to the end and found out there was no eternity, you'd look back and go, man, I wasted it. Because I spent so much of my life investing in what's eternal that if there is no eternity, then that was a waste. I think that's a good sort of tool to assess our own lives, to ask ourselves, is that true of me? If there was no eternity, would my way of life be pointless or would it not have mattered anyway? Look, here's the thing with that wedding. I was very confident as we were planning that year that Cassie would in fact show up and the reason was like we made sure of that before we moved forward. It's what we call a proposal. I looked her right in the eyes and I said, will you marry me? I want to make sure we were real clear on what I was asking. She looked me back in the eyes. She said, yes, I will. Put a ring on her finger. I said, good, we're off and running. Let's go plan a wedding. So in one sense then, that whole year of planning and all of that, the meaning and significance of it really depended on something that was going to happen, something we were looking forward to. But that had already been determined by something that happened in the past. Paul says that's true of us too. Our whole way of life, all that we're counting on, our faith, it all depends on if there is a resurrection, if there is an eternity, but that's been determined already by something that's happened in the past, namely the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's where he turns. Look at verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That all there refers to all who are in Christ through faith. Everyone in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. That's admittedly a bit of a mouthful. There's a lot of subjection going on in those verses. But here's the big point that he's making. Would you write it in? It's that Christ was raised, and therefore those in Christ will be raised too. 
So everything he said up to this point is true. If there is no resurrection, if Christ hadn't been raised and we're not gonna be raised, there's no eternity, then none of this matters. It's all pointless, that's true. But it's also hypothetical because the truth is Christ has been raised. In fact, if you go back to verses five to eight of this chapter, he gives some of the evidence of that. He says that after Jesus' very public execution, lots of people saw him alive. And he names names. He says, look, he appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to more than 500 people at once. He says most of them are still alive. He says some have died. But at the time of the writing, he says most of them are actually still alive. He says he appeared to James, he appeared to all the apostles, and he says, lastly, he appeared to me, to Paul. Why does he say all that? The resurrection is as important as he's saying it is, and it is. The Christian faith stands or falls on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul wants to give some evidence that Jesus is actually alive. And so he's saying, look, don't just take my word for it. I think hundreds and hundreds of people saw Jesus alive after his death. And he names names. He's saying, go ask them. Go verify what I'm telling you. That's why he says some of them are dead. You can't talk to them, obviously. He says, but most of them are still alive. I mean, this is verifiable. Really strong evidence then that Jesus actually came back to life. In fact, when people ask me, why do we really think Christianity is true? How do we know it's right and other religions are wrong? When they ask questions like that, this is the first place I go, to 1 Corinthians 15. Because it all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. If he did the kinds of things he did and said the kind of things he said, died a public death and came back to life, you have to do something with that. So how can we be confident that he actually came back to life? Well, Paul says, look, hundreds and hundreds of people saw him. He's saying to his audience then at the time, saying, you can go ask. If it wasn't true, it would have been proven to be untrue very quickly. But it wasn't because it was true. So Paul says, look, Jesus is in fact alive. And not only that, if he came back to life, then those who were in him will also come back to life. They'll be raised from the dead too. That's the point he's making when he refers to Jesus as the first fruits. That's an agricultural term. It, it means if there's a, a first fruits, that means there will be a rest of the harvest. By definition, there has to be a rest of the harvest if there's first fruits. So what's he getting at in this context of the resurrection when he says Jesus is the first fruits? He's saying there's a rest of the harvest. Yes, Jesus was raised, but that means other people are gonna be raised as well. But it doesn't all happen at the exact same time. He makes that very clear. He says Jesus was raised in the past. Our resurrection is in the future. When Jesus comes back, that's when those in Christ will be raised. It means we haven't experienced that yet. We haven't experienced the eternal state yet. It's something we're looking forward to. We're anticipating. We're hoping in and hoping for. But it's future. 
And this is where I think it can get a little tricky and in some ways hard for us because just the timing of it, the fact that we haven't experienced it, the fact that it's future, sometimes the eternity begins to feel so far away that it seems irrelevant to us right now. Even if you would affirm it, you would believe there is an eternal state, there is heaven, it's coming, but it's just sort of this abstract idea that's out there that doesn't mean much for us right now. The truth is heaven is not that far away for any of us. I mean, there's only a couple of options here. One is that as far as we know, Jesus could come back any moment. And I say, yes, come Lord Jesus. It's one option. The other option though, is that you die before that happens. And death is not that far off for any of us. I mean, for the younger people in the room or listening, we're talking, what, 60 years or so till you die? And in the big picture, that's not that long. So for all of us, odds are we're going to die fairly soon. I know that's the word of encouragement you were hoping to hear when you came to church today. I bet that's what got you out of bed this morning. You thought, I just need a good reminder that I'm going to die soon. And I know at Ingleside, they'll tell me that. <laughs> but I think this can actually be good news for us. What if I reworded it this way? If you're in Christ, you'll be in heaven soon. That's a word of encouragement. That's good news for us. It's not that far away. We're not gonna have to wait that long to experience the very presence of the Lord and all that goes with that forever. And as that sort of sinks in to our, our thinking and to our hearts, to our feeling and affections, and that begins to shape our worldview that we're gonna be in heaven soon. I mean, that affects how we live our lives. That just frees us up to live differently. It frees us up to invest in eternity. It frees us up to have biblical values and priorities. It frees us up to have a whole different kind of vision for our own lives and for our families and to dream about what life is like now for the sake of the kingdom of God in eternity. Oh, it's so liberating and encouraging and freeing. If that becomes our worldview, I'm going to be in heaven soon. Doesn't that affect how we, how we think about our money and what we want to invest that money in? And how we spend our time and what our priorities are? Doesn't it affect how we view uh, suffering and trials? I mean, do you remember what Peter said about our trials? He said, we face trials that last for a little while. Do you know what he meant by a little while? He meant your entire life. Why would he say a little while? Because he's putting it in perspective. Saying in the big picture, when you take eternity into account, trials in this life are but a little while. He's saying heaven's not that far off where there's no more suffering of any kind ever. It's just perfect joy, and happiness in the presence of the Lord that's coming and it's coming soon. See, if we really believe that, it affects how we live right now. Paul says that pretty directly. Verse 29, 
He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead aren't raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Let me just pause right there and say, we're not real sure what he's talking about there. Uh, Apparently, there was some sort of practice in Corinth uh, that wouldn't make any sense if there was no resurrection or if they didn't believe in a resurrection. And so it's not even clear Paul is affirming that practice. He's just making the point. Verse 30 gets a little more clear. He says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? He says, if the dead aren't raised, well, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Did you write this in? He's telling us that the reality of the resurrection should affect how we live. Paul sort of points to his own life and says, look at what I'm going through. He was suffering. He was being persecuted for the sake of the faith in Ephesus. In fact, most scholars think he was writing this while still in Ephesus, while still in the midst of that kind of persecution and suffering. And yet his point is clear that it is worth it. He's saying, if there was no eternity, why in the world would I go through this? Why would I endure? His point is, I'm enduring, I'm persevering because there is an eternity, which makes this worth it. Now, once again, he goes back and makes the point, there is no eternity, there's no resurrection, there's no heaven. He says, well, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. None of it matters. You may just go for it, whatever makes you happy in the moment, whatever's easiest, whatever's comfortable, however you define pleasure in the moment, just go for it. You may as well, because that's all there is to your existence. Nothing really matters. And in fact, that's how a lot of people live their lives. And it's tragic. Because the truth, as we've seen, is there is an eternity which means in Christ there is eternal joy, there is eternal reward, there is eternal blessing that's being offered. And if we just live our lives for the here and now, not that everything temporary is bad, in fact, lots of temporary things are good and necessary and gifts from the Lord, but but if that's how we're living our lives, it's just oriented around the temporary, the here and now, immediate payoff, then we're missing out so much of what is offered us in Christ. It's what C.S. Lewis had in mind when he said that God often finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Lewis said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. 1 Corinthians 15 and the reality of the resurrection that it teaches. It just takes our focus off mud pies in the slum and it puts our focus on a holiday at the sea that's offered us in Christ. It takes our gaze off the here and now and focuses our gaze on the eternal that we might live in light of that. 
So would you write this in to sum it up? Here's the big idea that for those who are in Christ, his resurrection in the past guarantees our resurrection in the future, which affects how we live in the present. It's my encouragement for us today is to let that sink in. And not only that, but to be more intentional and active in consciously thinking about this reality. To daily remind ourselves, eternity's coming. It's not that far away. And then live like that's true. Go live like you're gonna be in heaven soon. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for the reality of the resurrection, for the hope that we have, and for all the blessings that uh, we can barely begin to imagine that we'll enjoy literally forever. Father, I also thank you for what it means for us now. And I, I do pray that you would just keep this truth in our minds and hearts in such a way that we would live in light of it, that we would orient our lives around what's eternal as we look forward to actually seeing that and enjoying and experiencing it one day. And as we do, I pray, Lord, that you would be honored with our lives. And we ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen.